Welcome to Replay Value, the podcast that deep dives into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm your host, Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a paranormal comedy, the cult classic, Ghostbusters. Part of this movie, three former professors set up shop as a unique ghost removal service. Yeah, and, and that's just a very, uh, very rudimentary way of putting it. I mean, that's the, the premise of the film, yes, but ultimately it is a uh, kind of a wacky idea to take the the thought of having three would be scientists who, if you look at Peter Vinkman, you don't even look at him as a scientist, but have these guys believably be what what essentially turns out as ghost as ghost chasers it's kind of a almost comes off as cheesy when you first hear about it yeah it does but they do a good job the movie's very self-aware of how ridiculous it is and at least there's some comedic exchanges and some funny scenes um you know like with the elevator and the cockroach uh big cockroach up on 12 uh you know so they the film is aware of how ridiculous the concept is. Very convenient timing, by the way, that they just happen to launch this business when paranormal activity starts to spike in New York City. I mean, it's almost as if you get to the origin of that, like Dan Aykroyd's character, uh, Dr. Stance, had something to do with it. I don't know. You, you would almost think that, but it, especially when you when you see uh, you know Ray and Egon, they were very much interested in it. Um, for a long time, you get the feeling they never put like a time onto it about how long they've been involved in it. But based upon, you know, them essentially getting fired and losing their grant money at the, the university that they, they worked for, they'd probably been at it for a while thinking that it was believable. So it was, you know, um, a little, the, the timing was a little, uh, fortuitous to, to, to be able to launch their business at, at the time they lose their jobs when ghosts come out. But it is something yeah. they've been going for, for, for a long time. Uh, plus you have, you know, Vinkman, you know, he is not exactly the scientist type. So, you know, from, from the get go, you, you don't necessarily look at him as a scientist, but it, it could have with a different set of actors, a different story. It very could have easily come off as cheesy. Uh, but, I would say that from the get-go, the actors is what sells the tone of the film in, 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 in this movie. Yeah, I mean, the actors really, and we'll get to the casting of the film later, they really make the film work. Uh, their relationships between each other, their exchanges between each other, and uh, a, a lot of great moments that, that they share on screen. Getting to the production of the movie, Ghostbusters was all Dan Aykroyd's idea. He came up with the concept. It he had written it originally for himself and John Belushi and called it Ghost Smashers, uh, where they travel through time and space. Time, space, and other dimensions. Yeah, this was uh, very much kind of like uh, him taking uh, his SNL brother in crime, you know, uh, John Belushi, who he you know started the Blues Brothers with. Um, he kind of wanted to take that that duo, a very successful duo, and channel his love of the paranormal because you know Dan Aykroyd did and still does have a great love for that, that field and take that idea and spin it into a comedy. But, um, you know, like you said, ghost smashers traveling through time and space, the, what the original idea and what it ended up being 
two very, very different things. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, they had to rework the script, of course, after uh, John Belushi passed away. And even uh, Ivan uh, uh, Reitman, uh, who ended up directing the film, uh, the first draft he thought was just undoable. It was unfilmable. Uh, so it, it they reworked the movie a lot uh, until it became the final uh, draft. Yeah, and unfilmable in a sense that you know he that it was just too expensive. He he liked the movie. He liked the idea. He was in it from the from the get go. But he took one look at Ackroyd's first script and 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 just it did, it wasn't wasn't feasible uh, from a financial standpoint to have them do the things they did in the script. So. Um, I believe it was, um, the, the script is actually credited, written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. So, uh, after the meeting with Reitman, uh, he, and of course with, like you said, with Belushi passing, they went to a, I think a bomb shelter in Martha's Vineyard for like three weeks, completely rewrote the script and you got the tone of the film and the, 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 the movie that we know and love today from that rework. Actually, in some of the earlier drafts, it was originally going to be an adult film like Stripes, uh, but over that three-week writing retreat that you just mentioned, uh, they made it more of a family-friendly comedy. And, you know, I would use the term family-friendly kind of loosely when you compare it to today's family-friendly films. Very Much more than, I would definitely, than the second one, uh, and it, the you know the cartoon and what it's turned into the first film I would not classify as as family friendly as as we look at it today. Mm-hmm. One one of the things that stands out and you just you, you don't you didn't notice it at the time, but looking back is like holy shit! Everyone in that movie smokes all the time. You have the protagonist, the Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. these characters that kids should be looking up to and did look up to and thought were cool, smoking cigarettes like freight trains. Yeah, and uh, Dan Aykroyd's, you know, Dr. Raymond stance, uh, basically, the, you know, the heart of the Ghostbusters is just drinking Budweiser right there in frame when they're hanging out in the shop and he's working on the car. Um, yeah, so, it, and even the language, you know, I, it, we'll get some of the scenes, but really kind of surprising, like, you know, uh, Dan Aykroyd's character, it appears, has some kind of sexual relations with a ghost in, in one of the montages. Um, well, that was a dream it, sequence, but yeah, it was it was very out of place for a kid's movie. It know? really is. I, I'm, I almost feel like that would have been cut if it, that film came, uh, that scene would have been cut if the, the movie came out today. Now, Ivan Reitman, at this point... Um, this Ghostbusters was his fifth feature. Uh, he'd previously directed Stripes, Meatballs, Cannibal Girls uh, with Eugene Levy from American Pie, uh, yeah. you know, Jim's dad. Oh, yeah. Uh, but Stri- Stripes and Meatballs starred Bill Murray. So he'd worked a lot with Bill Murray already. And, you know, they had a working relationship when they uh, teamed up for, for this film. I do want to talk more about that when we get into the casting of the film. But, you know, just from an overall standpoint, as far as ensemble wise, you really had a great chemistry between the the, the three principal leads um, in the movie. I, I I do want to go back and talk more about some of the inspiration for for from the film from from Aykroyd's standpoint. You know, he him and Ramis, like we said, worked on it together. But you know, this just wasn't a kind of an out of the blue idea. It hadn't been done in years and years. But a lot of the credit is given to a Bowery Boys slapstick comedy, Spookbusters. That came out in the 1940s. Did you did you see that? Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I, didn't come, I didn't see that. 
I didn't watch it or anything, but I mean, it was more of like a, like I said, a slapstick comedy, but yeah, a uh, kind of like a paranormal ghost extermination type of thing. And then, uh, it was also inspired by a 1937 Disney short called Lonesome Ghosts in which the line that is in the famous theme song, uh, ain't scared of no ghosts came from, it came directly from that 1937 short. Huh? Wow. I, a- Ackroyd really pulled from some of the some old some of the oldies. Yeah, you have to be uh, either really into paranormal to where you're pulling out some of those very obscure titles like that. But uh, before I kind of looked into this movie, I did. I would never would have guessed that that line, uh, such a famous line that is, you know, uh, one of the more quotable ones in the song by Ray Parker Jr. would have come from a Disney short of all places. Mm. Yeah, uh, that that is a wild connection. Now, the filming of the movie uh, began in October 1983 in Manhattan. Uh, most of the exterior of the film was shot in New York City. And New Yorkers have really spoke about this movie as being a love letter to the city of New York. Yeah, you even have the end of the film where Winston yells out, I love this town. You know, it, it, there this movie and, and like some of the others we mentioned in the past, how, you know, Ferris Bueller, our first episode was very much John Hughes's love letter to the city of Chicago. This movie, um, really holds this, the city of New York in a high regard. And you really get that the city loves the ghostbusters. The ghostbusters love the city. By the way, you spot, talk about the city loves the ghostbusters. What is up with this Beatles type fan following they have? They didn't release any musical albums that I know of. They're not doing live shows. Like where is this? I, I just, it, it is, it's kind of great when you watch it too. They have some of that classic eighties movie music playing right before they go up to the top of the central park West building, uh, to confront, um, Zool and what ultimately becomes marshmallow man. Um, Really, I don't know. It's just really interesting with the uh, the fans, uh, them having such a strong fan following. No, I mean, I, I love that. In a sense, though, it almost adds a a, a realistic nature to it. And you know, if you think if that happened in real life, they would absolutely be celebrities. It might only be in the city of, of New York. I don't know how. I mean, granted, it would be it was a different time back in the 80s when the film came out. But. I love that about this film that that wasn't my, that wasn't my favorite scene, which we'll get to later, but I did really like that part of the movie where it shows the montage. It's playing the theme mm-hmm. song. It shows them gaining notoriety and like it shows them on the cover of time magazine and rubbing it around and, and, and Larry King live and uh, Casey Kasem, it, it, you know, they're talking about the ghostbusters it is a really, really cool moment. And one that adds to their celebrity. So, it conveys how big they got. Yeah, and by the end of the movie, which is the scene I was talking about, they're like crowded around the building. They're jumping up and down and screaming like Beatles fans would almost. Um, Can't talk about the production of this movie without talking about some of the iconic elements in the film. Yes. Proton packs. Oh, yeah. You know, the the, uh, Ectomobile, the car, uh, which is really just a modified 1959 Cadillac Miller... uh, Meteor with an aftermarket ambulance uh, uh, put in, which is how they got that achieved that look uh, of the vehicle. Yeah, and and, um, and that ambulance conversion that I had with you know, of course, the other 
ghost busting stuff on the top, you know, that led to its iconic look. And I, I mean, I remember when we were kids, you, we went to, uh, I think it was universal studios and they would drive the Ecto one around and you would think, and they'd have like, you know, that, you know, actors dressed up as the Ghostbusters, and oh yeah, dude, we thought it was the coolest thing. I mean, you, you see so that, great. you see that. We even cart. had the toy car. We had the toy as well, the car you would drive around, put the action figures in. I mean, just just an iconic, iconic car, and it almost did not happen. The original Ecto uh, from the, you know, the the storyboards before it was you know fully through design was originally going to be jet black and have super features. Like it mm-hmm. could go, it could go invisible and, and, and uh, lose the cops, so to speak. You know, a Grand Theft Auto player's wet dream. I mean, it was completely different than what you would than what you see now as the Ecto One, the iconic white with the ambulance conversion, like you said. Um, so amazing to think about what could have well, almost wasn't. Yeah. Looking at the car too, it has a lot of like wires and equipment put on the outside and you can't help but think of the DeLorean from Back to the Future. It's like that concept of putting things on the outside of a car to make it seem like it can do extraordinary things or is capable, is not your normal car. Really very cool look and 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 you know that type of uh, anesthetic with both of those vehicles and both of those film franchises really hit the uh, the, the zeitgeist bullseye. Moving on, the Proton Packs, another iconic um, piece of equipment from this film. Uh, you know, they, the design, there's a lot of work that went into these, and these were the real deal. I mean, when the actors carried them around, they were like made out of a lot of Army surplus equipment with, uh, you know, several things added on. They had the Proton, you know, wands that would come out of it. Uh, but these things were, again, the real deal. When the actors went around, they weighed 30 pounds, plus they have the batteries in them, uh, mm-hmm. which to you know, get the lights and effects. This is like 50-pound equipment that Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis, and, um, and of course, Ernie Hudson were, were, were lugging around. These things were the real deal. And it caused some back issues for the actors because they spent so many long hours wearing those backpacks. And, and again, we talk about being kids, you know, we dress up as Ghostbusters. You get the backpacks, and probably my favorite part of the accessories. Everyone had their backpack with their, you know, their wand gun, if you will, but uh, kind of that hybrid attached attached to the backpack. But uh, what was really great about that whole concept was the trapper. You'd slide it under the yeah. ghost, and it would just open up, and it would suck all the the ghost in it, and it would close. Yeah, so the trapper was, for me, my favorite part of the whole ghost hunting weapons. That was probably my favorite piece of the armory, if you will. Yeah, and um, another thing I really loved is that their base was inside an old fire department. And it was actually the Firehouse Hook and Ladder Company 8, an iconic building that you can still see in New York City to this day. But that was really cool. They had their, uh, you know, the car in there, the Ecto-1, and then... You know, they slept there, they stayed there, they'd slide down the pole and get their, their, their outfits on. Just a really, really ingenious idea to have their headquarters be a fire station. I, I really always loved that. And I don't know if it's subconscious, but with them sliding down, I mean, firemen are the real-life heroes of society, one could say. But also you think of the old Batman show where they slid down the pole. There's just something that kind of subconsciously makes you look at them in a heroic perspective with yeah. that kind of location. It's like their Batcave almost. Again, the iconic elements in the design, the, their headquarters, the car, 
the, the proton packs, even the jumpsuits, they just really nailed it. Yeah, I mean, it's iconic to this day, and, and I know that we keep using that word, but it's true. Um, you know, you still have people dressing up as the Ghostbusters for Halloween, and I mean, cosplayers really go all out. They have their own last names stitched on the uniforms. They have proton packs that really light up, that are heavy, that you carry around. I mean, people really, really get into to dressing up as the Ghostbusters, It's and it's a badass look. I'm, I'm jealous of it every time I see it. I want to be a Ghostbuster still. As an adult. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah, all right, let's move on to the year uh, the movie came out. Yes. Worldwide premiere, June 7, 1984. The theatrical release date was June 8, 1984. On a running time of an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, and a budget of $30 million. Box office performance. Opening weekend, $13.5 million. U.S. gross. Original run, $229 million, Final tally of $242 million, with a worldwide gross of $295.2 million. It was the number one film at the box office in 1984 and was the highest grossing comedy of all time until the release of Home Alone. Huh. Wow. Uh, that's would not have guessed that would have been the film to usurp it. But, I mean, you think about that. It's like, you know, you said $229 million in its original domestic run, but only 295 worldwide. I think nowadays, if that movie were to come out, you would see a much larger chunk coming from the worldwide market. And this movie would even have been a bigger hit than it, than it already was. And, and granted, it's, it's a very large hit. Uh, if you were to adjust those numbers for 2018 dollars, it actually would have pulled in $631 million. I mean, wow crushing it for this. That's this a time. monster. Yeah. And then opening weekend, 37.5 million. But again, that that's tough to say for a movie that came out, you know, 30 plus years ago, it just opening weekends and then going to the, it just wasn't the same as it is now. So that 37.5 may still seem low, but mm -hmm. you have to think of the life of the movie to open at 37, but ended up grossing 631. It was number one at the box office for five consecutive weeks. So the word of mouth was very strong on the movie, uh, for, uh, further supporting what, what you just said. Yeah, and now it's just, you know, word of mouth can kill a movie before it even comes out. Um, and I think you even saw that from the most recent reboot of the Ghostbusters. You know, uh, Back then, a movie, you know, it really earned its its take and uh, it really built a following and could could sustain that type of run. Well, movies also stay in the theaters a lot longer. We talked about that. Like one of the last movies to stay in the theater for a year plus was Titanic. The movies just aren't in theaters very long. Usually within three months, it's available on your iTunes if you want to buy it. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, now, this movie also uh, had a little bit of success with with awards as well, did it not, Warren? Yes, it was nominated for two Oscars, Best Effects and Best Song, uh, which you have to talk about uh, Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters song. I would say that, you know, as far as um, as far as movie themes go, you know, you typically think of the more famous ones, Star Wars, uh, The Godfather. I mean, you get the, the list goes on, but they're typically you know instrumental. Uh, I, I would say that for a song that is lyrically driven and a, a tied to the theme of a movie. This has got to be the most famous one out there. I mean, it's, it, and that the odd thing about it is, is that it's one that you can sing along to. It's typically very rare for such an iconic theme. 
it is when you think of other movies. It's it, it is somewhat rare now that I think about it. Back to the Future has Power of Love by Huey Lewis, but that doesn't have the title of the movie or the theme of the movie, you know, so to speak, in there. But it still was a huge hit. Uh, you know, uh, it was a huge musical hit outside of the film. Huey Lewis did have a couple songs that were associated with the movie, you know, back in time. But those mm-hmm. movie, those songs could stand alone from the movie and be great because Huey Lewis is awesome. Sorry. But Ray Parker Jr., the Ghostbusters theme, it, it's it, it's called Ghostbusters theme. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, you know, it, it only has one association that is to the film, but still a great song. Sure. Uh, and also have to point out, and somewhat surprising when I came across it, is it was nominated for uh, a couple Golden Globes, uh, two of the big ones, Best Picture, Musical or Comedy, and Best Actor, Bill Murray. What? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't actually win any of these, but just to be nominated, right? Again, a movie like this to be nominated for those type of awards is not something that you even uh, that I didn't think of until I, I came across it. No, you, you wouldn't have normally associated with it. I never would have guessed it would even have gotten uh, two Oscar nominations. But, you know, the original song I could see, it was, it was a big deal when it came out. So. And, you know, a lot of the films we do are universally acclaimed. This wasn't necessarily the, cl- the case, at least with the critics. Audiences worldwide, they loved it. Uh, but critics got mainly positive reviews, but it did have some negative ones, so they were a little mixed. Uh, you know, Roger Ebert gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, but you had, like, Variety and, you know, the New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, some of the major uh, institutions of film review really didn't grade it too favorably back then. Um which was, again, also surprising when I came across it. Uh, other movies of 1984 I want to mention real quick. Terminator, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Splash, Police Academy, The Natural, 16 Candles, Never Ending Story, and Beverly Hills Cop. And finally, Footloose, which will segue us into the musical hits of 1984. Footloose by Kenny Loggins. And the number one hit, When Doves Cry by Prince. What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner and the song we just spoke about, Ghostbusters by uh, Ray Parker Jr. Man, a damn good year for movies and for songs. I mean, wow, 1984 was crushing it. Yeah, and, and it just it, we, we do this to help date the film and given how long ago this was, 1984, to get a sense of pop culture and where the zeitgeist was. Uh, real quick, top TV shows, the Emmy winners, Best Drama, Hill Street Blues, Best Comedy was Cheers. The number one show on TV was Dynasty, followed by Dallas. So it just gives people an idea of how long Jeez. ago this was. Wow. All right, let's get into the casting of the film. Um, we talked a little bit earlier. It was originally going to be a um, – Harold Ramis was still going to be in it, but the primary two actors was going to be Dan Aykroyd and, and John Belushi. Uh, John Belushi uh, passed, uh, believe in May of 1982 when the film was being written. Um, so they kind of reimagined it and completely kind of tailored it almost to Bill Murray, uh, who was who was brought on after after Belushi um, unfortunately passed away. Yeah, an untimely and tragic passing. Another great talent we lost too early was also. Uh, involved in the earlier drafts of the screenplay. The role of Lewis Tolley was written for John Candy originally. Yeah, but you know, the John that, that role of Lewis Tolley, uh, you know, Rick Moranis played it as, you know, the, the a nerd type, you know, the the the, the accounting um, kind of numbers math geek. Uh, 
Candy was more going to be the conservative businessman, the guy in the suit. Um, so it would have been a very, very different role. And he could have still done it. He just he just didn't want to commit to the project. So Rick Moranis came in, played it differently. And it's, it's for a supporting role, it's very iconic for, uh, for, for what he did with it. And it was a big break for him. I mean, he was an unaccredited writer on the film, but and he'd had some various bit parts, uh, but this was his first big role in a big movie, and Rick Moranis became a star in his own right. I mean, he went on to do, uh, I mean, he had a hell of a run. Uh, Parenthood, uh, My Blue Heaven, um, Little Shop of Horrors, which I loved that movie growing up, just a personal replay value favorite of mine. Uh, Spaceballs, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, that franchise, of oh, course. Yeah. Dude, he yeah, he went on quite a run there. And My Blue Heaven is a is a criminally underrated film, uh, pun intended there. But that him and Steve Martin are just man, that that's a that's a great great movie. So you got to talk about Ernie Hudson being in this film. Uh, he almost did not get this role. I mean, he's a great Winston Zeddemore, but this role uh, actually almost went to Eddie Murphy. I, I don't know how close it came, but um, the character of Winston um, originally was going to have more of a backstory. Uh, he was going to be, you know, have this whole history of being in the Air Force as a demolitions expert. Uh, and the day before they started shooting, uh, Ernie Hudson got an updated. I mean, he really he really wanted to do this role. He had a feel like he had a lot to, to, to do in the film. But the day before they started shooting, he got an updated script, had a much more reduced role for him, a much more increased role for, for Peter Vinkman, for Bill Murray's character, uh, you know. Ernie Hudson is not necessarily he, he he's happy he was in the film appreciates the opportunity but he does say he was a little bit frustrated that after I guess it was more associated with Eddie Murphy leaving but that his role was reduced in such a way still I love I love his character in the movie and I thought he got to do a lot more in the second film as well so now we talk about Dr. Egon Spinkler played by Harold Ramis uh, co-writer on the film with Dan Aykroyd as we mentioned didn't originally plan on acting in the film until he just came to figure that he was best to play the role. Really? Oh man, I did did not know that. I figured he was in it from the from the get go. I mean, he's just so he's so perfect. You can't imagine the movie without him. He is, you know, just that that neutral, that unbiased, scientific mind. Um, so I did not. Wow, that that's pretty cool. Well, he's per- pretty well cast in it. I mean, he 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 really nails the behavior of the character. Uh, and he had acted in Stripes before. I mean, this was his, you know, second big film as an actor. But as a writer, he, you know, he, he wrote Animal House. He wrote sure. Caddyshack. He wrote Stripes already. He'd certainly written a handful of cult classic films leading up to uh, Ghostbusters. Now, talking about Sigourney Weaver, which, unlike the other actors we spoke of in the movie to this point, was a bona fide star already uh, before she did Ghostbusters of course, with her breakout role in 1979's Alien. A very, very different role than what she was in, in Ghostbusters here. But yeah, you're right. I mean, she was uh, probably the, the most bona fide of the bona fide A-listers in this film, brought a lot of clout to it, but a, quite a different turn for her for, for, for her and what she did in Alien. It almost seems like a career move, like her representatives or manager agents wanted her to play something different to show her range, and, 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 and maybe that's why they put her in something like this, just to be completely different from what she had been known as. And Sigourney Weaver did go on to prove her talent in spades. I mean, she went on to be a pretty big star. Uh, three Oscar nominations, three Emmy nominations. Uh, of course, you have the Alien franchise, Aliens, 
uh, and, and the rest of the sequels, Working Girl, uh, Gorillas in the Mist. I mean, so she's went on to make some, uh, some fine films uh, after Ghostbusters uh, 2. And, of course, Galaxy Quest and Avatar. i got to mention those. <laughs> you, you mentioned Galaxy Quest like every episode. You love that movie. The high replay value classic. Uh, now, Dan Aykroyd, writer of the film, uh, creator of the concept, uh, really wouldn't be a Ghostbusters without him. And when you look at his career at that point, you know, he was an SNL alum, already starred in Blues Brothers and Trading Places. Feels like he parlayed a lot of that success and kind of mortgaged it on Ghostbusters and took that opportunity to write and make this movie. Well, as a writer and having the clout of being a, a someone, you know, an SNL former cast member, uh, he was really almost tailored to jump into the movie business. He worked on film. Uh, he could write and bring his ideas to the screen, but he just, I feel like he was able to make that transition a lot easier than some other the, uh, SNL cast members. Now, uh, talking about, uh, of course, the, the lead of the film, the number one on the call sheet, Bill Murray, pl- who plays Dr. Peter Vinkman, now, Bill Murray had already done Caddyshack, Stripes, Tootsie. He was a pretty big deal. They really catered to Bill Murray after he was cast. Uh, as you mentioned before, they re- rewrote a lot of the script right before shooting and took a good chunk of uh, Winston uh, Zedmore's character's uh, scenes and some of his material after Eddie Murphy's casting fell through uh, and, and, and gave a lot of that to uh, Bill Murray's character. And I hate I hate it for, for Ernie Hudson, but I mean... It's Peter, it's Peter fucking Vinkman. I mean, Bill Murray is, I mean, he's the epitome of cool in this film. Uh, I mean, granted, he doesn't have the respect of, as a scientist. Uh, you don't know how he got his, you don't know how he got the title doctor. They even kind of make jokes as far as, you know, you never studied. So you almost got the impression that as they went to school together, that he was prop like, if it wasn't for Dan Aykroyd's Ray Stance character, you know, Peter Vinkman probably never would have made it to where he is as a quote unquote scientist. He really kind of rode on Stance's coattails, but he was a good friend and probably, you know, someone that, um, as a, a little too much of a, of a, of a party didn't really, you, from the get go, from the opening scene that he's in, you know, he doesn't take his job very seriously. I was just going to say the opening scene, you already know, like he's using that whole opportunity to get a date with the female student after they get done. Which, you know, again, if this movie came out today, I don't know if that if that movie would if that uh, scene would have been in it the same way, you know, a professor flirting with the student, so to speak. But yeah, looking at the cast we just talked about, like uh, it's just a fraternity of actors and filmmakers who would who had worked together and would go on to work together in a number of films. Before we move on, though, quick mentions on some bit parts. Larry King. Casey Kasem's voice is featured in it, and William Atherton, who played the asshole reporter in Die Hard, uh, if you remember, is in this film. He plays the pushy environment agent uh, with the, the government. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And great asshole. Cameo, he's a great yeah, asshole. Yeah, great, great <laughs> asshole. Good. He's really good at playing an asshole. And, of course, and I got, of course, I got to mention there's a cameo by Ron Jeremy. Oh, is there? I missed. Yeah. What? <laughs> he, he's an extra. Holy shit, you're right. I forgot yeah. about that. I, yeah. I mean, I heard it before, but oh man. <laughs> Might be the only time we actually mention an extra in the casting of, of a film, but That's uh, I certainly think it's worth uh, worth a mention. All right, let's talk about uh, our favorite scenes and lines from the film. Uh, I want to start out with uh, by saying that there's a lot of them in this movie, a lot of 
a lot of nominees uh, for me for favorite scene, but let's go ahead and have you kick it off, Warren. What's yours? A lot of scenes with a high replay value. Uh, some nominees real quick. Uh, Vinkman, Stans, and Egon see a ghost for the first time. In the library, yeah. In the library. Love that scene. Like, they see it, and they go negotiate in the corner like some kind of football huddle trying to figure out how to proceed, and it's hilarious. So what do we do? Could you come over here and talk to me for a second, please? Could you just come over here for a second, please? Right over here. Come here, Francine. Come here. What do we do? I don't know. What do you think? Stop that! We've got to make contact. One of us should actually try to speak to it. Good idea. Hello. I'm Peter. Where are you from? Originally. Shh. Okay. I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. Now stay close. Stay close. I know. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. Ready? Get her! <laughs> I just really enjoy that scene. Um, Vinkman uh, going back to Dana's apartment and checking it out with her. Oh, <laughs> uh, <it> just <laughs> and the chemistry between those is really great. Any scene they're really in bantering is 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 pretty fun to watch. I like the mayor meeting because it feels like the stakes are really raised when the Ghostbusters are in there talking to the mayor. There's a great exchange where the Ghostbusters are really telling them what's going to happen. Yeah, that that scene is um, has. One of my favorite lines in the film, um, uh, not not my favorite, but I just want to mention it because you talk about the scene is that um, he talks about, you know, was there an explosion? And, uh, you know, yeah, Dickless here did this. And it's like the mayor's like, is that true? And he said, yes, it's true. This man has no dick. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that line. Also one of my uh, favorites as well. Where they capture the ghost for the first time, they're, they're just, you kind of see them figuring out how to use the gear and, and uh, they, they finally uh, get that um, uh, little green blob uh, uh, in the trapper. A slimer, yeah. Dude, that, that, that scene is the, I love that. Uh, uh, you know, the, the first encounter, you know, really they're as professional ghost, you know, with their equipment getting Slimer in the hotel. That's yeah, that's right up there. That was, that was definitely one of my runner ups. And Slimer is probably the most iconic ghost from the series. I mean, right there with Marshmallow Man, but he's, uh, one of the first ones you think of in the, uh, in the ghost lineup of this franchise. Um, the Ghostbusters success montage, when you kind of see their success and in the papers and you see their rise into uh, the consciousness of New Yorkers yeah. and, and, and them really being local heroes. So I really love that. But my favorite scene, got to pick just one, it's when Vinkman gets slimed. Vinkman, I saw it, I saw it, I saw it. It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. It won't hurt you. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Yeah, that uh, you know when they you know, see Slimer for the first time and he's talking to Ray on the um, 
on the little walkie-talkie, and he screams, and you see kind of the camera behind Ray running, and Vinkman's just laying on the ground. I love that. That's so great. I, I, re- I remember that when we were kids, uh, you know, our dad would tie around the corner with the blanket, and as soon as he would come around, you remember he would like, cover us with the blanket up. We loved that part of the movie. It was, it was great. Um, yeah. My favorite scene, I thought you were going to say this. I can't believe you didn't even mention it. My, my absolute runner, I, you know, my second place was the fame montage when they shows them doing the interviews and, and Larry King talk. We talked about that earlier. Uh, but my number one scene has got to be with the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Come on. The choice is made. Whoa, oh, oh, whoa. The traveler has come. Nobody choose anything. Did you choose anything? No. Did you? My mind is totally blank. I didn't choose anything. I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. What? What just popped in there? I, I, I tried to think. Look! No! It can't be. What is it? It can't be. What did you do, Ray? Oh, shit. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Well, there's something you don't see every day. I tried to think of the most harmless thing. Something I loved from my childhood. Something that could never, ever possibly destroy us. Mr. Stay Puft. Nice thinking, Ray. And you have a brilliant way of working in the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, which I will say, um, originally with... Um, you know, the script with when it was Ghost Smashers was going to have a lot more um, iconic, uh, you know, almost characters like that as far as ghosts. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is one of the few things that was in the script from the beginning. It stayed in there the whole time. So that actually did make the cut. But I, I had to go with that scene. I could see why you picked it. I mean, it's one of the most entertaining scenes of the film. And, and even that moment you mentioned where Dan Aykroyd's character, uh, Raymond, uh, Dr. Raymond Stance, uh, where he kind of reveals it like I couldn't help myself. I, I just think it has a really great comedic moment there uh, between himself and the other Ghostbusters. Yeah. So moving on to favorite line from the film. Uh, there, And this is one of the more quotable movies we'll do on this podcast What's your what's your favorite line from the movie, Phil? All right, a couple I want to mention. Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. I, I love that one. And a lot of them, a lot of the great lines in this movie, you know, well, I would say come, you know, from from Peter Vinkman. Uh, he he has a great delivery and a, a lot of really good lines. One other one that was my nominee being back off, man. I'm a scientist. You know, I love that too. Uh, but my first place is not said by Vinkman. It's actually said by Winston Zedmore. It's after Gozer asks him if he's a god, and he says no, and they get they get blasted, and then it comes back, and Winston turns to, to, to Ray and says, Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! <laughs> yeah, that is pretty funny. Uh, when when shit's hitting the fan, uh, it was uh, a, a a great line to add some levity in there. So many quotable lines, uh, and I, I have to mention, "I ain't afraid of no ghost," which is a line in the nineteen fifty nine Vincent Price film, "The Bat." Wow, deep cut there, man. I did not. Where'd you pull that one from? Holy shit! Now, 
A couple other nominee lines I'm going to mention real quick. Uh, heat heat them up. up when they're like walking together and yeah. it's in your favorite scene and, and Bill Murray's essentially quarterbacking the crew and telling them what to do and when to do it. And it's a really cool moment when he's training Winston. Like they, they had to hire uh, Winston because they needed more help. And it's it's like any other job. He's got on you know on the job training, showing him how to use the machine. It's it's a, uh, a cool little moment there. The light is green. The crap is clean. Again, Vinkman with a, uh, another great line. Nobody steps on a church in my town. One, two, three, <laughs> yeah, with the Stay Puff is, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. was pretty good. And I love Vinkman again. You're right, no human being would stack books like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's it's just the way line. he delivers the lines. You know, they, yeah. There's nothing like that special about him, but his delivery is, what, is what, what's the best. And it's Bill Murray. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. We came, we saw, we, we kicked, kicked its ass. ass. Yeah, yeah lo- love that. But – my favorite, and you and you mentioned it a moment ago, and I didn't want to spoil. I got to go within the mayor meeting. Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Oh man, that was I was really close to picking that one. That's ah, uh, damn. That's a good one. Sorry, sorry to, to take that, but man, uh, let's jump into uh, one of my favorite parts of the podcast where we recast the film with today's stars. Uh, a lot of I, you know, again, use the word iconic, but a, a lot of um, a lot of roles in this movie that are very memorable. Uh, let's start from the bottom, work our way up. Now, um, I included Janine Melnitz and Lewis Tully. Did you did you recast those, Warren? Yes. Okay. So let's start out with your Lewis Tully. Who did you have? I was between two actors. Jack Black was one of them but i had to go with charlie day i mean he's just perfect oh for it. shit man that's pretty good oh man mm. charlie day god bless him. he's been so hilarious I, I mean i love rick moranis in the part but i almost think charlie day would have gotten more laughs oh, shit that's good that's really 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 good damn it i wish i would have thought of that uh, i actually went with a current snl cast member he's not really well known uh but he's he kind of i kind of would think in the same background almost rick moranis had not real well known good writer uh kyle mooney from the current saturday night live cast kind of has that nerdy geeky quality to him uh i feel like he could he he could uh he could really really do do well with that part um but mm. Thinking back on it, Charlie Day is really good, so I would have changed it to that one. But yeah, I do think, I, I, yeah, I, I was gonna say I think I'm gonna have to go with uh, Kyle, Kyle. Not a bad choice, but uh, I think I'm gonna have to go with uh, old Charlie Day on that one. Okay, so for my Janine Melnitz, uh, didn't really have um, any nominees for it. Uh, as soon as I thought of this person, I went with it, and that is gonna be Jenny Slate. Oh, that's a great casting. She'd be really good in that part. Yeah, she's been in uh, you know quite a bit of stuff. She was uh, had a you know, small role as John Ralphio's sister in Parks and Recreation. Um, she's done some voice uh, acting work, most famously in Secret Life of Pets. But she has got that. She's got a very very distinct voice, uh, and I just think not only that, but her demeanor, her attitude. I think she'd play that uh, that administrative assistant role to the Ghostbusters very very well. Yeah, I know she would. Uh... Love that casting. Uh, I had a, I did have a couple nominees for this part. I liked Ellie Kemper at first because I feel like that bubbly personality. They maybe go a little different direction, but I feel like she would be good at that uh, part, uh, especially if you see the new Ghostbusters where they kind of went, went with the Chris Hemsworth interpretation. Mm-hmm. So maybe kind of going more in that vein, she'd be good for it. Uh, but Lu- also uh, Lucy Davis, 
The secretary from Wonder Woman, she's really great. I'd like I to am. see her as that. Uh, but my my winner of who I would cast is Pamela uh, Adlin from uh, Californication. She played Marcy, which was uh, Runkle's wife, and she's also uh, played yeah. Louis, Louis C.K.'s uh, wife yeah, in yeah, Louis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I could see her. It's just... Uh, very, very, I think it'd be a very, very, any of three of those would be a very different take on the way Annie Potts played it. But yeah, I, I could see that. I like that. Um, all right. So let's get into our casting for Winston Zeddemore. Uh, Warren, who'd you have? Spoke to me pretty quickly. Didn't have any nominees on this one. I went with Sterling K. Brown. Oh my God, dude. Holy shit. I almost picked him. Dude, you have no idea. Like I thought of that and then I was like. No, I mean, I feel like he he would be really, really great at it. I mean, dude, seriously, I you have no idea how close I was to picking him. I actually went in a different direction. I uh, was thinking of somebody who's just, you know, when Winston comes in, he's a very much, you know, he just wants to get a job. He just wants to work. He's, you know, he he's, he's ready to do whatever. He's ready to jump in. And, and that's kind of unbelievable. The fame level of the Ghostbusters that we're at, there would be a tons of people hiring him you know, trying to get hired on as that job. He just walks in, almost gets hired on the spot. Kind of unbelievable for me, but anyway, moving on. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I went with uh, David Harbour from Stranger Things as kind of like, uh, you know, guy, it was a blue collar guy just trying to get some work. Kind of, you know, can be the more serious one, but at the same time, not taken too seriously. Yeah, I do like that. And it's funny you say that because even when he's in there interviewing, he's like, as long as it pays, I'm down. Like, he doesn't care. He is just there to get the check. And I feel like David Harbour could kind of play that more. Uh, anyway, so let's go with Egon Spingler next. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because you, uh, you know, I told you I almost picked Sterling K. Brown as Winston Zeddemore. After thinking about it and after what he could do as an actor, I picked Sterling K. Brown as my Egon Spengler. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Think about it. I mean, he has a he he's a great actor, has a lot of range, but if you think about him in that role, he could do that scientific mind like the the he could easily be the most intelligent person in that group and you would respect him as the venerated scientist. I think he would be a great yeah. casting for that. Maybe closer to the Chris uh Darden character from the OJ movie versus his character on This Is Us. Um, yeah, I mean but I'm saying he yeah. has such range he could do yeah that, and I think that speaks to him as an actor that you could believably cast him as Winston and I could see him believably cast as as Egon. I mean two very different characters. Well, and I feel like that actually is the case in with a couple of the parts in this movie. I felt like there was a couple of actors who could actually play both. I feel like Jack Black, who I thought of for Louis Tooley, could have played Raymond Stance. So I almost picked uh, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there are they are interchangeable uh, with, with some of these actors. Uh, interesting choice. Uh, my uh, Egon, uh, I had a, a fine. I had narrowed it down to two finalists: Steve Carell, but I ended up going with Jeff Goldblum. Oh. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, really? Well, here's oh, the thing. Man. He's a little older, but Egon is the oldest character. It's it's actually, you could see him being probably 10, 15, 20 years older than everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have no problem with the age thing. It's just like, it's more like the demeanor of Egon Spengler. It's just, Jeff Goldblum's too cool to be Spengler. 
you know, it's, I don't know if he could nerd it up that much. I think I, he can. He's cool nerd. I think uh, I think Goldblum can definitely go cool nerd. Yeah, well, I mean the thing with Egon is he's not he's he's cool, but he's the only person who thinks he's cool. Whereas, he's cooler than you than we think he is. He's got Annie Potts all over him the whole movie. Uh, maybe so. All right. He's got he's got game. He got game. Okay, so uh, now we do Dana Barrett. Yeah, Dana Barrett. Okay, who'd you have as your Dana Barrett? Spoke to me pretty quickly. No nominees, no finalist. Claire Foy. Kyle from The Crown. Ah, very yes. good. Uh, yeah, I, this one was a little bit tougher for me. I, I really, really like that choice, by the way. Um, she could play that serious role, but at the same time, kind of the the flirty type of uh, character you would see with uh, with, with, with Vinkman. Um, I had a couple nominees. Um, nothing really that I'd want to speak to or mention. Um I, I settled once I thought of the one I wanted, I, I settled on this casting pretty quickly and I would go with Emily Blunt as my Dana Barrett. Yeah. She'd be great at that. And and if you look at the different roles she's done, I mean, it, she has played literally so many different types of characters. I just have no problem seeing her slip on the chameleon uh, skin of uh, Dana Barrett and, and just going right to work. Yeah, you could see her as the flirt, you know, the, the type that flirts with Inkman. You could see her as the serious classical musician in the orchestra, and then you could also see her as the uh, the, the the Dana Barrett that gets possessed by uh, Gozer and is a completely different Dana Barrett that 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 we see at, towards the end of the film. So I think she is she could hit all three of those. Great, great actress. Yeah, um, I like it. Let's get into uh, Doctor Raymond's stance. Uh, this one was, uh, you know, I thought about Jack Black, but I wanted to pull someone that is, could be more of a scientific type. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's kind of him and him and Spingler are kind of two peas in a pod. Uh, he's not quite as serious, but at the same time he is, he's got a very, you know, very, very robotic and calculated voice and just blah, 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 you know, talks like he is a scientist to the core, believes in everything paranormal. Uh, to sell this part, I feel like Jordan Peele would be a great choice. Okay. I like Peele uh, as that part. I feel like Raymond Stance is that the straight man, the everyman. Like, he is the Steve Jobs of Ghostbusters. He's the visionary. He, In fact, he's the heart of the Ghostbusters. He is. I mean, he's yeah, what right, drove yeah. it forward. And, they, and Vinkman even says that when they're getting their Beatle fanship uh, right before the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, had, I had a couple finalists, and I, I thought of the straight man in comedy who we live through, you know, the audience lives through when they see ridiculous insanity going on. Um, I feel like, and maybe at a different time, Ben Stiller would have been good. Jason Bateman, mm, Seth I thought about Rogen. Bateman. Yeah, Bateman. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, but, but especially Bateman. But I feel like it's just he. Maybe not now. Maybe ten years ago. My uh, my wife picked when we were talking about this. She thought uh, Seth Rogen would have been a good choice. I almost went with him. Yeah, he. I, I feel. Yeah, I feel like he would have been pretty good too. Uh, but I ended up going with Ed Helms. You know, it's funny you say that. She said Ed Helms for Spengler. So it's just kind of it's just kind of weird how that kind of works out. Oh man. Again, there, the, the, a lot of these are interchangeable. I feel like the only one that isn't really that interchangeable is uh, or the two of them is Vinkman and Lewis Tolley. I feel like those guys are so far to one side of the spectrum in terms of their characteristics. I feel like those aren't as interchangeable as as a lot of the other ones. All right, so let's get into it. Our Peter Vinkmans. Uh I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like there was only one choice for this. You'll probably blow my mind with your choice, but um, 
when I was thinking about it, as far as who is that epitome of cool, who could pull it off, that devil may care type of attitude, I went with Ryan Reynolds. Oh, my God. I went with Ryan Reynolds, too. You got to. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. 100% agree. He is would have been born to play this role if it was made today. You got to mention a couple uh, other actors who would really fit it quite well. Bradley Cooper's character from Hangover is remarkably similar mm-hmm. to yeah. this character. That, I thought that, about that. that. I don't yeah. give a shit. Um, and also, uh, I feel like David Duchovny added maybe a, a few years ago that it's very there's some Hank Moody to Vinkman. no, no, that's good. Yeah, David Duchovny could have definitely played this role, but yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think about the the, the quotable lines and you know, the back off, man. I'm a scientist. So you could hear Ryan Reynolds saying that line. I mean, as well as several of the other things mm-hmm. that in this movie. And, and one of the my nominees for Dana Barrett was actually Maureen Abacarin, who is his uh, uh, love interest in the Deadpool movies. I didn't want to say it when we were talking about that casting because I didn't want to give anything away, but I, I didn't choose it ultimately because they're in the Deadpool films together. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, you got to go with Ryan Reynolds. I love, uh, good choice by you. <laughs> by you, by both of us. Real quickly, uh, I do want to move on and talk about uh, a fan theory. A lot of interesting ones for this film, like a lot of the movies we do. But I had had to discuss this one, run it by your your, your desk here, Warren. Let's there, hear it. There is a fan theory that the Ghostbusters die at the end of the film. That given the seriousness of what Egon originally explains will happen if they cross the streams. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. I'm fuzzy on the whole good bad thing. What do you mean bad? Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. That's bad. Okay. All right. Important safety tip. Thanks Egon that the Ghostbusters, when they cross the streams, they end up perishing with the, you know, with Gozer and, and actually do not survive that blast. It's kind of a, a fantasy sequence at that point. And it, supported by that is that in Ghostbusters 2, it mirrors the, the first movie so much that it's almost type of skewed, like, People magically don't remember them saving the city. It's almost not believable that Ghostbusters 2 is almost like their purgatory, but that they didn't actually survive the end of Ghostbusters. I am baffled by that fan theory. That is, I've never heard of that, and I really can't see how someone came to that conclusion. Again, there is a sequel. (laughs) But they they say the sequel, well, they say that's why the sequel happens. It's their purgatory, and that's also why in the quote-unquote you know the, the 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 reboot they don't they don't exist but ultimately it just it more so plays off of the seriousness of what happens when you cross the streams it's like you were never supposed to do it and suddenly it saves the day and how can you take crossing streams serious i mean am i the only man who was once a boy that what that makes you think of <laughs> crossing the streams i mean come on i mean that had to be some kind of play on words when they put that in the script this is true yeah i never thought about that <laughs> well, <at least. laughs> Probably not since I was an adolescent, but I, th- that was it. Was a fun one, but you know, as, as uh, most of these fan theories, it's there's no no uh, no clout to it. But it was ultimately uh, ultimately fun to, to read. Some have more clout than others. Uh, now moving on to the legacy uh, of the film. Of course, Ghostbusters launched a media franchise, uh, a sequel in 1989, Ghostbusters Two, two animated television series, the real Ghostbusters and 
Extreme Ghostbusters, several video games, in fact, 15 to be exact, if you count all the different uh, consoles, mobile devices, and arcades that they release games on. I just remember as a kid talking about the video games is that when we, we, we were so pumped to play them when we were younger. They were all fucking impossible. They were so hard. They're very hard. Now, didn't they come out with a new game here a few years ago that was actually not bad? People really liked it. It was well-reviewed. There was, yeah, Sanctum of Slime was not bad. I think it came out on the, the Wii or the GameCube. Uh, there's, there are a couple good ones out there that are kind of more accessible, but the ones like on the NES and the Sega, that oh, my God, they were so hard. Yeah, and, of course, we had um, the Ghostbusters reboot in 2016, that completely tanked. Yeah, it was set up. It just, I think it had a lot of, a lot of negativity coming out of it. It, you know, the, the, the success of this film, I think it was so great is because there were funny moments. There were great, there was great acting, but it, it was kind of, it was never like a joke. The goat, like it, it, it was tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it didn't, it wasn't campy. And I felt like the new one went too much in a campy direction. I don't want to sit here and review that one, but the tone was completely different. And I think that, what makes Ghostbusters, this film, the original, so great is the tone, and that was lost in the reboot. Now, we mentioned uh, the awards, uh, this film, two Oscar nods, two Golden Globe nods. Um, AFI, American Film Institute, ranked Ghostbusters number 28 out of the top 100 comedies of all times on the 100 Years, 100 Laughs list. Yeah, and I look at it, you know, as the, the, the film that... It came out in 1984 is far different than what the franchise turned into. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the second film was more accessible. They kind of went in more of the family friendly direction. And then that was further reinforced with the cartoons that came out. They fully started gearing it towards children and it's gotta be for the merchandising. And, and really, I don't blame them. Uh, and I think that, you know, considering, you know, you don't even have to count the 2016 film because, the whole reason that it came out is because, you know, 25, however many years later from the second film, it was still such a phenomenon and still had such a cult following and people that loved it and remembered it that really pushed for the the reboot getting made. But it's kind of miraculous that it's still at this level uh, of pop culture with only two films that came out in the 1980s. It dead-eyed on the zeitgeist bullseye, and that's why it has lasted and sustained as long as it has. I mean, look at Stranger Things 2. In the the second season, uh, there's a whole episode about them dressing up as Ghostbusters that pays tribute to Ghostbusters. There's even an argument between the characters about who gets to be Vinkman. What? Why are you Vinkman? Because I'm Vinkman. No, I'm Vinkman. Why can't there just be two Vinkmans? Because there's only one Vinkman in real life. We planned this months ago. I'm Vinkman, Dustin Stans, you're Egon, and you're Winston. I specifically didn't agree to Winston. Yes, you did. I don't think he did. No one wants to be Winston, man. What's wrong with Winston? What's wrong with Winston? He joined the team super late. He's not funny, and he's not even a scientist. Yeah, but he's so cool. If he's cool, then you be Winston. I can't. Why not? Because... Because you're not black? I didn't say that. You thought it. Its effect is still as strong as ever 30-plus years later. 
Uh, absolutely. And again, I think a lot of that is due to it being pushed towards the children, the cartoons and the video games and the merchandising. I think that that has gone a long way to have an effect of it staying in the, the conversation. But it all started with a with a, a, a really great and well done and funny film. Yeah, it all started with this first one. Uh, now, the Library of Congress in 2015 selected it for the National Film Registry, which really cements it from a historical perspective. Worth mentioning real quick, uh, there were uh, paleontologists studying a fossil uh, a, a couple years ago uh, that concluded it resembled Zool from Ghostbusters and named it after him. Get the fuck out of here. Really? Yeah. That's all. Oh, that is awesome. It's just, you know, life imitating art. You know, it, that that's that's great. I love it. Oh, man. Yeah. Again, another example of how it's just continues to influence uh not only entertainment and other uh, TV shows and movies that come out, but even beyond that in science and, uh, and out in the real world. I think Roger Ebert summed it up best when he said, this movie is an exception to the general rule that big special effects can wreck a comedy. Rarely has a movie this expensive provided so many quotable lines. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Really, really helps us out a lot, and we do greatly appreciate it. Remember to download new episodes every other Tuesday. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye.